Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, last time when we addressed this subject of uh, the covenants in Scripture, we talked about um, covenants of men with men. This time what I want to do is address the subject of God's covenants with men. And this is going to be a, a, a very high-level overview of God's covenants with men, which I hope will enable us to pick out the distinguishing features of these covenants, that is, the features that distinguish God's covenants with men from covenants between man and man. We're going to come back, God willing, to this subject again and look at these covenants of God with men in much more detail, but the purpose here and now is to show that God's covenants are different. There are three points in which I want us to see that these covenants are different. The first point is that they are always unilateral covenants. The second point is that God will not break his covenant, covenants with men. And the third is that these covenants are in Christ. So let's take first that idea that God's covenants are unilateral. When we read of covenants with men, we find different languages, language used in different settings. For example, if the parties to the covenant are equal or roughly equal, then the language that is used in connection with these covenants will probably be, let us make a covenant, or the two of them made a covenant. You see the bilateral character of these covenants in the language that's used. This is the language that uh, Laban used with Jacob in Genesis 31. He said, let us make a covenant. The two parties were roughly equal. The covenant was a bilateral covenant, an agreement, we might say. Now, sometimes, though, in Scripture, you have a weaker party approaching a stronger party and proposing a covenant. The weaker party cannot make the covenant. The weaker party is not in the position to make the covenant. The weaker party is not even in the position, really, to um, of equality, which would say we can make an agreement between us. The weak, weaker party needs the consent of the stronger party. And so the language in this case will be make a covenant with us. The covenant making then becomes primarily the business of the stronger party. And we have examples of this in the scriptures. First of all, First Samuel 11 verse 1, 1 Samuel 11, verse 1. Here Nahash the Ammonite has come and attacked Jabesh Gilead, a city that belonged to the people of Israel. And the men of Jabesh Gilead uh, feel themselves uh, incapable of defending themselves against Nahash. And so they say to him, verse 1 of 1 Samuel 11, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. And then Nahash proposes the terms of the covenant. 
Verse 2, on this condition, I will make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. So here the weaker party proposes the covenant, but recognizes that nothing can happen unless Nahash himself uh, agrees to this. The stronger party uh, uh, has, the, has to take the initiative in making the covenant. You find this similar language in John Joshua 9 verse 6 when the Gibeonites came to Joshua to propose a covenant with him. They went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. And you find it again in 1 Kings 20, verse 34. 1 Kings 20, verse 34. Um, This is the Syrians seeking a covenant with Ahab after Ahab has defeated them. So Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities which my father took from your father I will restore, and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty, or the Hebrew is actually covenant, I will send you away with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and sent him away. So here you have Ben-Hadad proposing the terms of the covenant, but Ahab is the one who has to act. Ahab has the one who has to accept the terms which uh, Ben-Hadad proposes to be imposed on Ben-Hadad. The weaker party, therefore, is proposing a covenant, and he's suggesting to the stronger party that the stronger party make the covenant with him. Sometimes you have, uh, instead, the language of someone who is stronger or who is superior uh, the case of a someone who is stronger or superior making a covenant. And the language also reflects, reflects that. So we find in 2 Samuel 3, verses 12 and 13 and 21, that David made a covenant with Abner. David made the covenant with Abner. And in uh, 2 Samuel 5, verse 3, 2 Samuel 5, verse 3, All the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. Undoubtedly here, David was promising to be a faithful king, to rule them according to the law of God in righteousness, and to lead them into battle as the king was expected to do. And we saw last week that sometimes the stronger party will compel a covenant from the weaker party. This was in Ezekiel 17, where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, imposed, basically imposed, a covenant on Zedekiah, made him swear an oath to be a faithful subject of Nebuchadnezzar, not to rebel against him. Zedekiah broke that covenant, but he nevertheless uh, made the oath which uh, Nebuchadnezzar required of him. So the stronger party, in that case, imposed the covenant on the weaker party, made the weaker party swear the oaths. But when we look at the covenants of God with men, we find that those covenants are not treaties, they are not agreements, they are not contracts, 
They are not arrangements between equal parties, nor even arrangements mutually agreed to between a stronger and a weaker party, but they are arrangements, dispositions of affairs that God imposes on the people whom he chooses to be his people. And this is clear from the fact, from two things that God, two kinds of language that God uses in connection with these covenants. First, he always says, I will make a covenant. He doesn't come to Israel and say, let us make a covenant. And Israel doesn't uh, come to him and say, um, please make a covenant with us. God approaches his people and he says, I will make a covenant. And the second thing that you find in these in the, the divine language of these covenants is, I will make my covenant. It is God's covenant that he makes with his people. Now this is illustrated, I think, by the uh, ceremony that is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 15, where God told Abraham to take these animals and divide them, and then he alone passed through the pieces of the animals. He was the one who was making the covenant with Abraham. And he was saying, it seems, let me die like these animals if I do not keep my covenant. He assumed full responsibility for the establishment and maintenance of his own covenant. And he kept this covenant to the point, actually, of actually giving his own son in order that that covenant might be maintained. Now, let's look then at the language that God uses in the various covenants we have already mentioned before. You have first God's covenant with Noah. You find the first reference to that covenant in Genesis 6, verse 18, where God said to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God speaks. God says, I will establish my covenant. Not let us establish a covenant, not our covenant, I will establish my covenant. If you turn now to uh, Genesis 15, which is the chapter also where you find the ceremony of the cutting of the animals, verse 18, we find the same language there. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. In Genesis 17, verse 2, again, And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Even when God gave to Israel the law, which is uh, sometimes in the Old Testament called a covenant of God, the law, God speaks of this covenant of the law as being um, his covenant. Ezekiel, Exodus chapter 34, verses 10 and following. He said, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, 
nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. I will make the covenant, he says, and then he uh, imposes his covenant on the people in this way, observe what I command you this day. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst, but you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images, and God gives them some of his commandments as well in the verses that following. So the covenant with Abraham, is, or with Israel, at Mount Sinai is also God's covenant, which he establishes. And then the covenant with David which is talked about in Psalm 89, verse 28. Psalm 89, verse 28, where God says, My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. So God uh, comes to his people. He says, I will make my covenant with you. It's unilateral covenants. Now this does not mean, of course, that we have no obligations in these covenants. We do. But even these obligations are fully determined for us by God. God comes and he says, I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And because I will be your God, and you will be my people, you must obey my covenant, my commandment. You must keep my covenant. God takes us into the covenant. God lays the obligations of the covenant on us. We submit willingly because of God's grace working in us. The covenant is always, uh, the obligation is always after the fact of the covenant itself. As the law makes clear, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. So we cannot extract ourselves from the covenant. Our violations of the covenant do not terminate or annul the covenant. The covenants of God are unilateral covenants which God makes with us. And this is, of course, consistent with the way of salvation. Salvation is a unilateral work. We all confess that. In in that work, God irresistibly draws his elect to himself and to the glory which he has promised. He preserves them to the end in spite of our many falls into sin. He never lets one be uh, taken out of his hand, snatched out of his hand. And the covenants of God are, in fact, the promises of the gospel, from which promises of the gospel um, follow uh, our obligation to live for God. So God's covenants are unilateral covenants. The second thing that we want to see in connection with these covenants is that God will not break them. Now, we break the covenants. The scriptures have a lot of that kind of language in them. God accuses his people many times in the scriptures of breaking his covenants. And we break them in the sense that we violate them. We do not fulfill our obligations in the covenants. 
We do not, however, break them in the sense that we annul them. We cannot annul the covenants of God. They are his covenants, which he has made, and only he can annul those covenants. But he does not. He keeps covenant and mercy with his people forever. His covenants are never broken. And again, if we look at the various covenants that God made with men in the past, we see this same thing happening. So in uh, Genesis 8 now, verses 21 and 22, God's covenant with Noah, part of the promises of that covenant. We don't have the actual uh, language of covenant there, but it is nevertheless the uh, promise of the covenant that we're talking about. The Lord smelled a soothing aroma from Noah's sacrifice. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. These are promises, and God has not broken those promises in the thousands of years which have passed since he made those promises to Noah. He has not again destroyed every living thing as he did at the time of Noah. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night have not ceased. He has kept his covenant through all the years that have followed. But the scriptures themselves teach us this as well. There are two passages we want to look at here. The first is 2 Peter 3, verse 7. And we read there, The heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The heavens and the earth, which are now, that is, that heavens and earth, which came into being after the flood, The world that existed before the flood perished, verse 6. The world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Out of that came a new heavens and a new earth. The heavens and the new earth. And those new heavens and new earth are preserved by the word of God, by the covenant which God spoke to Noah. They are reserved also for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But God has promised he will not destroy them with a flood, and he has not and he will not do so. But the second passage is even more significant, I think, and that's found in Jeremiah 33, verses 20 and following. God says to Jeremiah and to his people through Jeremiah, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant. So God refers back to that covenant with Noah, and he says, if you can break that covenant, the covenant of day and night, then you can also break the covenant with David, my servant. And he goes on in the following verses then. 
As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord has chosen, he has also cast them off. The people were saying, God broke his covenant. He's cast off his people. Thus they have despised my people, as if they should no more be a nation before them. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will cause their captives to return and will have mercy on them. Now notice that God is saying, not only will he not break that covenant which he made with Noah, but he is using that unbreakable covenant with Noah as an illustration of the unbreakable covenant which he made with David and with Abraham and with Israel. He makes reference to all three of them here. Then I will cast away the descendants. If I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he makes other references to it. I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, he says in verse 22. So he's referring to, he's using the um, covenant with Noah to illustrate the unbreakableness of his covenants with David, with Israel, and with Abraham. But we can also point to scriptural proof that none of those covenants also were considered breakable by God. First of all, we have then the covenant with David in Psalm 89, verses 30 to 37. We've already made reference to Psalm 89 to show that God's covenant with David was a unilateral covenant, but now let's see how this psalm illustrates the unbreakability of that covenant as far as God is concerned. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my statutes, if they break, if they do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. So God's saying, first, if they break my covenant, if they forsake my law, if they do not keep my commandments, he will punish them. Nevertheless, verse 33, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. God says, even when they sin, I will not break my covenant. And of course, what happened in the history following David was exactly that the kings, David's sons, did sin, sinned grossly against God. And yet God did not break his covenant. 
He kept the promise that he had made to David, that he would give him a son to sit on his throne forever. The same may be said of God's covenant with Israel. You read about his covenant with Israel in Judges 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And the whole history of Israel, of course, from the time of her wanderings in the wilderness to the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a witness to the unbreakability of God's covenant with her. Israel sinned. Israel's history is a history of sin, of gross violation of God's law, of breaking, constant breaking of God's covenant. And yet God remained faithful to his promise. He did not break his covenant. There were severe judgments that came on them, appalling judgments that came on them because of their violations of his covenants. But he did not break the covenant. And the same is true in the covenant with Abraham. You find this again in Genesis chapter 15. The whole point of that ceremony, of the passing between the animals, the uh, cut pieces of the animals, is that he will not break his covenant. He will keep his covenant, even to death. But Hebrews 6 also talks about this unbreakability of God's covenant with Abraham. Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. And note that phrase, immutability of his counsel. His covenant is traced back to his counsel. Confirmed it with an oath, that's his covenant, that by two immutable things, his counsel and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So God swore to Abraham by two immutable things, or God's covenant was confirmed by two immutable things, the immutability of his counsel and the immutability of his oath. But notice, too, that in that last verse that I read, verse 18, the apostle transfers that whole idea of the unbreakability of God's covenant to us, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Now, someone might argue, well, this is God's covenant with the Jews, and the book of Hebrews was written to the Jews, to Jewish Christians who were in danger of uh, apostatizing from the Christian faith. Well, that may be true, but nevertheless, that same covenant that God made with 
the Jews, he has brought the Gentiles into, as Ephesians 2 tells us. He has made of the two, Jew and Gentile, one new man. He has brought us into the covenant that he made with the Jews. So this is the new covenant of God with his people also. It is an unbreakable covenant. So that's the second thing. God's covenants are unilateral. God's covenants also are unbreakable. God will not break them. The third thing that we want to see is that these covenants are in Christ. Now I want to look at this from different perspectives. There's several different ways in which we can see this covenant as being in Christ. The first way, and perhaps the most important way, uh, that we see that the covenants are in Christ is the idea of the seed. And this idea of the seed runs through all of God's covenants in the Old Testament. So you find when God spoke, first spoke of his covenant, though he did not use that language of covenant in Genesis 3, verse 16, that he spoke of the seed of the woman. When he made his covenant with Noah, he promised not only to Noah, but to Noah's children. He saved both Noah and his children through the means of the ark. When he made his covenant with Abraham, he made his covenant with Abraham and with his seed, which was especially, as Romans 9 says, Isaac, not Ishmael, but Isaac. And when he made his covenant with David, he spoke of David's seed to sit on his throne forever. So this idea of the seed runs through all the covenants, also the covenant of God with Israel at Sinai, because Israel was that innumerable seed that God had promised to Abraham. This idea of the seed runs through all these covenants then. But then if you turn in light of that to Galatians 3 verse 16, note what God says there through the Apostle Paul. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. That seed that runs through all the promises of God in the Old Testament, all the covenants of God in the Old Testament, is Christ. Another way we can look at this is the ceremony of circumcision, the sign of the covenant with Abraham. And this becomes especially clear in Colossians 2, verse 11. Circumcision was a ceremony performed in the flesh of the male children of the people of Israel and the male children of Abraham's household. But that circumcision had a spiritual significance, the circumcision of the heart. And Paul says of that circumcision in Colossians 2, verse 11, In him you were also circumcised. He's talking to Gentiles here. In him you were also circumcised 
with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In him, that is, in Christ, Paul says, you were circumcised. And he calls that circumcision the circumcision of Christ. And he says that that circumcision is the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh. Circumcision is fundamentally in Christ. When we turn to the covenant with Israel, we find Christ all over God's covenant with Israel. In the ceremonies, especially in the ceremonies of the law, the bloody sacrifices were types of our Lord Jesus Christ. The priesthood of Aaron, the temple of which Christ said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up and referred to the temple of his body. The veil which separated the holy place from the most holy place of which Hebrews 10 says that when Christ's flesh was torn, the way into the holiest of all was made open for us. The cleansings of the law. The, our Lord Jesus Christ is all through that covenant of God with his people at Mount Sinai. We find in the covenant with David that it is Christ, really, who is the son that God promised to him to sit on his throne forever. And when our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 26 verse 28 spoke of the new covenant, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The covenants of God are in Christ. God keeps, confirms, and maintains his covenant by the work of Christ. It is because they are in Christ that they are unilateral covenants, for salvation is always and only of the Lord. And it is because they are in Christ that God will not break them. And it is because these covenants are God's covenants with us, and because God is faithful to his promises, that we have a strong consolation in two things, in the immutability of his counsel and in the unbreakableness of his oath, God has given to us a strong consolation who have fled for refuge in Christ Jesus, our Lord. May God bless us with his word.